Our war in Afghanistan is officially over. We should have all breathed a collective sigh of relief. Instead, we gasp at what we witnessed on our TVs and devices. Let's just say we can all agree that America's exit from Afghanistan was less than glorious. Did you know that there's a running theme in America's major wars? That while those wars were difficult, ending them was more difficult still. This statement applies to our Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, and even World War II. In every case, the challenges that followed were colossal, and in some cases, they led to renewed threats, depravity, destitution, violence, and even renewed war. And the difficulty always comes down to a simple question. Then what? Meaning, we won the war, but then what? In the cases of Vietnam and Afghanistan, ending the wars were even more difficult, because even though we won every major battle, we did not win those wars. So the same old stubborn and difficult question resurfaced. Then what? Saigon's rooftop moment and Afghans hanging onto an American military plane during his takeoff from Kabul airport seem to ignominiously answer that question and remind us once more that, while war is difficult, ending it is more difficult. Hey there, news peelers. Today is September 10, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel.News. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. On August 15, 2021, nearly a month ago, Kabul fell to the Taliban. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani fled the country and Afghanistan government, which the U.S. had helped create dissolved. Fifteen days later, at 11.59 p.m. on August 30th, the last U.S. military plane left Afghanistan. To better understand how this happened, and more than that, to better understand America's war strategy, now and in the past, we spoke with Mr. Bill Allison, who is a professor of history at Georgia Southern University. Professor Allison's teachings and research focus on war and society national security strategy, and the Vietnam War. He was a distinguished visiting professor in military history, U.S. Air Force School for Advanced Air and Space Studies. He was also a distinguished visiting professor in national security strategy, U.S. Air Force Air War College. Professor Allison is a recipient 
of the Department of the Army Meritorious Public Service Medal, and he's a former Vice President of Society for Military History, former Chair in Military History, U.S. Army War College, and a former member of the Army Historical Advisory Committee. He has written and co-authored several books on military history, including a 2020 book titled "American Military History: A Survey from Colonial Times to the Present." A link to Professor Allison's academic homepage, which includes a list of his many publications and accomplishments, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Allison and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review and don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Allison, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Now that we have left Afghanistan, in circumstances that are far less than glorious, everyone is asking, "How did it come to this?" In one of our previous conversations, you said something that left an impression on me. I want to start with that. You told me war is difficult, but war's termination is more difficult. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I, it's it's. I, th- I think it's it's a very good question and, and good idea to to wrestle with. Uh, and and thanks for having me today. I'm, I'm really my pleasure to be here with with everybody. Uh, it's a great. I think it's a good topic to get into today. But yeah, when we talk about war and the difficulty of war, um, I, I think, and and I'm not just talking about the American experience. I mean, for anybody, any country, mm-hmm. any people, um, and and you know. You can you can go all the way back to uh, Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War, whatever you know. Klaus Greece, was, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know the Athens and Sparta. You know back in the day, um, which you know still has a lot of resonance. I think um, as a work of history, but also that experience that Thucydides got into. Um, but also, you know, you know, look at the the great military thinkers of, of the last couple of hundred years, like Clausewitz and people like that. Um, You know that that it, the idea that you know war itself is very difficult. War is it, you you start a war. I think with the idea that uh, you want a better peace afterwards. You you go to war in order to get something better at the end. And you know war is the most extreme human activity. Uh, I mean this is this is a, a kinetic action where. Um, at least when nation states go to war, it is it is state-sanctioned violence. It, it is you know we authorize uh, our military to go out and destroy and and you know most likely kill, harm others uh, in order to achieve some sort of objective. And so you know you, you, when war begins, it's often re- in reaction to something, uh, an event, or like 9/11 or Pearl Harbor or something like that. Or Fort Sumter, uh, but it, you know, it when you when you start, it's it, you 
hopefully you have a clear idea of what it is you want to achieve. What, what is the purpose? What are we doing here? And that's some kind of, sometimes that's hard to do at the beginning because you, you, you're overcome with the, the adrenaline rush of the beginning of going to war and that sort of thing. I ideals. That sounds. Yeah. Right. The ideals exactly. Yeah. And all that. And um, so, you know, you get into it and things don't go as you plan as Clausewitz told us several times, you know, you'll have what you call friction. Things don't go as planned. There's bad weather. There's problems with production. It's just like in your daily life. Uh, the electricity goes out. The you know you get a flat tire in the morning. You know you got to deal with that, right? Your routine is is upset. How you think things are going to go don't go as planned, and that's true in war. Um, as, as great as we are at planning and and production and training and equipping, and of course you know the Amer United States. I think we have the best equipped, best trained, best educated you know military probably in human history. Um, but it's still difficult. And, and it still doesn't work always as planned. Now, war termination. Part of the problem, you know, many, many problems with war is at the beginning, you know, you, you need to think about, okay, how does this end? Uh, we started this thing or we're, we're in this thing now, but what does the end look like? Um, and it's not so much maybe what victory looks like, you know, the idea of signing a document on the, on the, the deck of the USS Missouri, right? Yeah. It's... You know, what is what is this what what is what does the end state look like where where is it you know in other words it's almost like how do we know we 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 are at the end that we want do do we recognize what that is even going to be you know you said and that's hard you said we are we have the best educated military in human history and yeah. we're talking about exit strategy and you know the deck of the USS Missouri you're referring to the surrender of Japan in World War II right is exit strategy i'm sort of using that startup term here but is exit from a war ending a war is that something that's taught in american military academies is there such a course yes um it's that's a, a great uh, uh segue to to get me to the, the the idea of war termination and and uh you know the the then what yeah right? you know, yeah what happens after okay and yeah, in, in, you know, not so much the academies per se, because that's a little, little, little young in, in a career to be thinking those kind of things. But um, are there follow up schools for officers? Yes, exactly. Uh, the, the United States, like many countries, has a very robust professional military education system. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when you become a captain or major, you'll attend one of the staff colleges, uh, which is appropriate for that level of command. It's, it's kind of part part tactic, part operational, a little bit of strategy. And then when you get to Lieutenant Colonel Colonel, uh, you'll, you'll attend one of the war colleges. Each service has one. And there's also a national war college in, in DC that is supposed to, the idea is to get you out of whatever, uh, you know, to use their lingo, whatever stovepipe you've been stuck in. Stovepipe? Yeah, your stove will pull That's you out a of that term. Okay, It'll pull you out of the rabbit hole, mine shaft, whatever you want to call it, uh, so that you can look outside and see. Oh, I got to start thinking about the broader world here. I got to start thinking strategically mm -hmm. versus operationally versus earlier as an officer as tact tactically. Okay? Is that so, like they're trying to help you see the forest for the trees? 
Yes, exactly. No, okay. that's bang on. That's exactly the way to put because a lot of these people are going to move into jobs where they're going to be serving not only as commanders, you know, brigade command or whatever, but they're going to be on, you know, general so-and-so's staff. Uh, uh-huh. They're going to be on, you know, NATO staff or something like that at a very high level, uh, which means they need be, to be thinking more broadly. So, so for example, uh, you know, I was a visiting professor at the Army War College a few years ago and, um, you know, was able to teach one of the core courses on the theory of war and strategy. And one of the things you get into in that class is, you know, how do you how do you do strategy? How how do you how do you avoid making bad assumptions and make good assumptions? How do you avoid uh, strategic narcissism and 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 lean more towards what we call strategic, strategic narcissism? Is that the term? You yeah. Think? Okay. Yes, um, and it's the idea that. You appreciate that that opens the can of worm. I could have a podcast right. just on that. Dude, we're gonna we're gonna be all over the place here. Today. Yeah. So I'll, I'll strain um, myself from asking that question. Go ahead, sir. No, but but the idea of strategic narcissism, which I think is something that we have suffered from uh, tremendously over the past fifty years or so, is we tend to look at strategic problems. Uh, whether they require military response or involvement or not, we tend to look at them solely through our lens, uh, from our perspective. You mean American see, military lens? Yeah, or or just you know the American lens. We the see American what lens. we want okay. to see, be it military, economic, diplomatic, whatever. Um, and you know why aren't you behaving like we want you to behave? We expect you to behave. And the idea of strategic empathy is you put yourself in the other person's shoes, the other guy's shoes, and try to see the world from their perspective. Because, you know, our adversaries have agency. They are not just faceless, mindless things, you know, that you see, you know, back, you know, the movies from the 50s and 60s where the Japanese are just these kind of things being mowed down in the background, (laughs) right? Or yeah. in Star Trek, you know, the, 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 the ship that's being blown up, you know, you don't even know they're the enemy. They're the enemy, but you don't know anything about them. They have agency. They have they have beliefs. They have they have a strategic vision. They have objectives they want to achieve. They have security issues, et cetera. Is that, is that analysis that. important for military purposes or are we? Are we having, so this is not a kumbaya thing here. No, 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 no. You, 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 you've got to, you know, it's, it's the old, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, uh, you know, Asian military thought, you know, especially, uh, Sunza, you know, the idea of know your enemy, right. Um, know your enemy, know what, know what makes them tick, what motivates them, what, and most of all in warfare is, is, you know, we may have a sense of what we want in a war, what our objective is, but what is their objective? What what are they fighting for, and why are they fighting for it? Um, and and what is what is what does war termination look like for them? Uh, you know how do how are they trying to see it from their perspective so you can understand better uh, why you're fighting this thing in the first place? Yeah. So for example, uh, Vietnam. Um, we saw that conflict as a proxy war, in essence as part of the broader Cold War. And we wanted to keep it contained, keep it limited, didn't want it to spread like Korea did and get the Chinese involved or whoever. <clears throat> but we, uh, we saw it through that, communi- that communism, you know, anti-communism lens. And 
So we were content to fight a limited war, so to speak, for the limited objective of preserving an independent South Vietnam. Whereas the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, the Viet Minh, they're fighting for unification. For them, this is an all-out total war for existential. Exactly, exactly. So their concept of, of what the war is about and ours were, were totally different. Okay, I follow, and I think that's one of the problems we have. Um, um, now, real sp- quick, go. No, I'm sorry. I was going to say, please. The, the the thing that back to what we started with a little bit, just to to wrap that up. Um, the what I mean by by war termination being the most difficult part is is the then what okay then uh, what? so in the American Revolutionary War right we're, we're fighting we're, we're going to get our independence we got our independence we won hurrah then what yeah okay yeah we fight the Civil War we've re we've we've reconstituted the United States we've abolished slavery then what okay World War One. We got to November 11th, 1918. We signed an armistice. We're going to go to Versailles, right? You know, then what? You know, those three so, are great examples because after all three, well, you know, the first two were American theater. This, the third yeah. one, World War One, it was in Europe. Um, the aftermath of the war was actually quite tumultuous. It was really bad. I, I, years exactly. To come. Uh, exactly. After the American so, Revolution, we had this uh, system that didn't work. So we had to c- come up with the Constitution. That's a great. Bang. Yeah, I love that uh, that point that you made. Absolutely. You know, what? Yeah, because you know Reconstruction worked great. That was a success, <laughs> right? Uh, very the treaty, after the Civil War, right? Yeah, the the Treaty of Versailles after World War One. You know, <laughs> well done. Disaster, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, Vietnam. It that doesn't matter. I mean, that if you can go all the way back as far as you want, um, you're going to find more often than not that the then what never went according to anybody's plan. And it's, it's rare. World War II is the exception. That's where we kind of got it mostly right, I think. Not perfect. I actually want to talk uh, right. uh, in more detail about World War II because that's yeah. a really interesting inflection point in our war history. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by this statement that you made. You said, we see what we want to see from the American point of view, our economy, our military objectives, and, and our, our politics. Within living memory of millions of Americans, another superpower left Afghanistan. Of course, I'm referring mm-hmm. to the Soviets. How did you see? You're, we're talking about how we see the world. Yeah, I want to know how the USSR military strategy and objectives in Afghanistan was different than ours. Did they? How did they see it? Yeah, um, you know, it, there's there's a, a there's some some key differences, I think, but but the big thing is, you know, we went into Afghanistan after 9-11, after all that happened, chasing a terrorist organization, trying to track them down and destroy them. Then and that then they happened to be in, you know, in a foreign country. Um, so we that we were our approach was a little different. For for the Soviets, uh, you know. Again, the Cold War context, uh, Afghanistan was their client state. Uh, Afghanistan was their buddy in the neighborhood, just like Pakistan during the Cold War was our, you know, kind of our proxy in the neighborhood. Um, so they went in to rescue uh, puppet government? 
Is that what yeah, they did? Where you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the uh, ah. Afghanistan, uh, you know, Professor Hanifi got into this a little bit, I think, on your, on your previous podcast, that, you know, they had set they, a, a secular communist regime was set up in Afghanistan, Soviet support, and uh, the Mujahideen kind of popped up to counter that, uh, you know, pretty harsh rule. But also, but also in the you know typical and Soviet style, trying to modernize Afghanistan as quickly as possible, and of course modernizing a country, a place like Afghanistan, which is so steeped in centuries-old tradition and culture, and you know very resistant to change, right? That uh, you can imagine that caused a lot of a lot of discomfort, a lot of problems, and that's by modernize. You mean civil society and culture, or also infrastructure? All that. All that. Uh, all of that. Uh, all of especially that. civil society and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I mean, that's we weren't the first ones to, to try to promote uh, education and whatever and opportunities for women. Uh, the Soviet, they, you know, that government was trying to do that too. They were. And, oh, uh, interesting. Yeah, the, the conservative elements, you know, of course, in Afghanistan, uh, the various tribes, whatnot, the, including the Talib, they didn't want to do that. You know, they weren't interested in that. Um, you know, that was too big of a change. Did so. That's that's how that gets gets going for the Soviets. So they 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 reluctantly get involved militarily, trying to prop up that government. There's several. There, there's there's. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to mess up the history here, but there's a couple of assassinations, you know, internally. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the government itself is very fractious, in addition to the growing insurgency by the Mujahideen. And, and so, you know, the Soviet side, we got to go in there, we got to prop this thing up, rebuild it, retrain, you know, train an army, get an army together, stuff like that, to try to regain, uh, you know, basically regain some semblance of control. So that's why they're there. Um, did the Soviets meet a different kind of adversary than we did? I mean, I know they faced the Mujahideen, we faced the Taliban, obviously they were different, but as far as Mujahideen's military capabilities and strategies, was it far different than Taliban's? I, you know, I, I don't think so. I, I think if you got into the, the, the details and the weeds, I'm sure you can find some differences, but, but overall, I think you're dealing with a very similar uh, force that that is the Mujahideen. I think was much more a uh, um, oh kind of a a, a a group of like-minded you know groups or tribes, what have you, that joined together um, that didn't get along very well. Uh, kind of like the thirteen they colonies did not. Of the American Revolution. <laughs> the yeah, they, 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 it, yeah. yeah, they, they didn't get, get along very well. Where the Taliban is 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 a more unified thing. It, it is to me a, a more you know not not completely, but but a much more unified deal. So that's a key difference. But both were that getting is a major support, difference. That both were getting support from uh, you know I the the uh, intelligence bureau uh, ISI in Pakistan. Um, you know the weapons were being funneled through there, and of course once the Soviet war begins in earnest, of course, we get involved uh, funneling weapons and whatnot um, uh, into, you know, to the Mujahideen, Mujahideen, Um, whereas, you know, the Taliban's getting stuff from, you know, who knows where, I mean, just, you know, wherever they can. Yeah. Um, So, you know, when we um, 
had the podcast um, with Professor Hanifi on the history of Afghanistan and parts of it, as you just mentioned, touched on recent history and the Mujahideen and the communist experience in Afghanistan. Thousands of, um, I assume, uh, Afghan, uh, either Afghan citizens or people of um, Afghan ancestry or Afghan Americans commented on Pakistan. That's a whole different conversation. I don't you, yeah. you know, we, we can't really get in it, but it's it's interesting. It was, uh, Pakistan seems to be almost another entire player, both in the case of Afghanistan, um, uh, USSR, and even more so in the case of USA, one that doesn't get enough attention here in America. Actually, they any really interesting to hear people comment. They're, on they're the cog in the wheel. They're, they're, they're the cock. I mean, they're they're the they're the linchpin. They, I mean, they they really are. They they yeah. they have made a yeah. difference. Um, and again, that's a whole uh, separate Pro conversation. And <laughs> Pro and con, yeah. And yeah. so, was the Soviets' exit anything similar to ours? I'm trying no, not to uh, use the word messy, so I won't. But <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I love all the terms that are being floated around. You know, the rooftop moment, and yeah, all that stuff. Uh, it's kind of like similar to Saigon, yeah, yeah, the Saigon. But no, they, you know, um, like us, they actually negotiated a deal months in advance. Uh, there were negotiations for a couple of years, and finally, an agreement reached. Uh, it's always convenient how these things happen in, in, in Geneva, right? There, there was another set of Geneva Accords uh, that the, the Mujahideen and, and uh, you know, we, we supported it. The Russians, uh, the Chinese supported it. Good um, business for Geneva hotels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a great place to meet, apparently, for these things. And exactly. so they, um, you know, they, there was a, a phased withdrawal over the course of several months. And, and so... Uh, phased uh, withdrawal. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, phased withdrawal. So like in, I think in, in I'm probably going to mess the years up a little bit, but I think in late, sometime in 87, a, a large group of Soviet forces moved out. And then the last group moved out either late 88, early 89. And um, now it wasn't completely clean, but, you know, they... The, the Russians only, they, they never had more than, I think, just over 100,000 troops in Afghanistan, uh, plus maybe another 25,000, you know, KGB slash, you know, paramilitary types. So, you know, they didn't have as big a foot, you know, I guess our footprint was similar. Um, but they, they, they left an Afghan army very well equipped. Um, I think in a little, obviously, clearly in a little better shape than what we left the Afghan army in. Because um, they, you know, in the Soviet case, they lasted for a few years. And that government lasted for a few years until it was finally overthrown by the Mujahideen. So, but they, but they were able to, they, there was no mass, you know, chaotic evacuation. It, it was an orderly you know, and of course, they were able to just drive drive out of Afghanistan, get across the border. Now they had to protect their lines, their yeah. lines of communication, and all that. I think there was one warlord who didn't apparently didn't go to Geneva and <laughs> didn't sign. Didn't <laughs> he wasn't sign invited. <laughs> yeah, wasn't invited or something. And he was in between, you know, there and and getting to the border. And and I think they uh, the Soviets lobbed a few shells. Uh, and his guys, you know, on the way out, um, but but nothing intense. And 
So it wasn't so crazy were, like ours. Yeah, it was, it was not, you know, it's, it's in, in many ways, it was kind of, I don't know, kind of anticlimactic, you know, not, not that you want the craziness of what, we yeah, yeah, yeah. but in the tragedy that we, but you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't near, near like that. Is there a major difference in the way we strategized for the Iraq war than we did for the Afghanistan war? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, low, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to ask about our objectives because I think our objectives may have even been different. That, oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that much I kind of know, but strategy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, that's, a, that's a, a, a great question because um, I, I, think, I think we've tended to lump all these things together. Yeah, exactly. Together. Yeah. I, one of the things I think early on that was unfortunate is, is we, we, start, we tried to call this thing the global war on terror. And so why is that unfortunate? Lump, well, we, this, you, you put a bunch of disparate conflicts into one bucket. And so it, I think not only the military and policymakers, but also the American public, at least for a while, were seeing all these things as one thing rather than the disparate conflicts that they really were. I mean, again, Afghanistan, we're there for a specific reason initially, and that's to get Al Qaeda. And that morphed into uh we you know we discovered hey you know these taliban guys don't seem too great maybe we should knock <laughs> them out yeah right and and we have an opportunity here to uh you know maybe establish some sort of uh free civil society um so let's go that route and if you're going to do that you're going to need a bigger footprint so that's when we got uh you know what me and others refer to as big green army you know the army writ large the are the big unit army into Afghanistan, and that creates a whole different, you know, set of issues. Big now, Green in, Army in Iraq. Uh, big Green Army, as opposed to special forces, yeah. special ops, you know, right, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, in Iraq, you know, that was a different deal. You're dealing with a a a much more modern, organized state, first of all. Than Afghanistan. Afghanistan is is not that. Afghanistan, but but Iraq had Shiites and Kurds and Sunnis. Kurds. Think? Oh yeah, absolutely. No no no. Um, and, Despite and that, you were saying it was a much more cohesive nation. Much more cohesive. Now now beat down that, and part of that was because of force. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, you know Saddam Hussein's regime basically ruled by you know tough love. I mean that that's how they <laughs> were able to keep the lid on it. But um, but still, Kurd, Shia, Sunni, that's three versus 50-something yeah. <laughs> plus, yeah. right, yeah, in yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah. So, um, but you have a much more cohesive idea of what Iraq is, I think, there in Iraq. Uh, you have a very modern, even though it had been defeated in the Gulf War, knocked back a little bit, but a very large, well-equipped and experienced Iraqi army. Um, you know, that when we invaded Iraq in 03, that was not a cakewalk. Um, that, that was a tough fight. And even though it was didn't it? last that long, I, I, yeah, absolutely. That was a tough fight. Um, you know, they, uh, you know, I know it didn't last long, you know, it's a matter of months before they collapsed, but um, they put up a fight and it was, it was not, not easy by any means. And so, you know, that that's a that's a key difference too but the, but the strategic approach was different because you, you're invading against a, a semi-peer competitor 
Whereas in, in Afghanistan, you know, the approach is different because you're, you're, you're moving from, you know, a, a special ops, small footprint, uh, trying to chase down Al Qaeda to uh, a larger army footprint to both provide security for a, a government that you're propping up, but also train a new Afghan, you know, national army and, and equip that. And, and those are different things. Now, back to Iraq, because we, we, disbanded the Iraqi National Army, then we had to rebuild it, right? Remember uh, Paul Bremer early on when he when he came over to the provisional authority? But that didn't uh, work out, so I remember Paul Bremer. Uh, yeah. No, it didn't. That was, a, that, was a, that, was, that was one of those moments where, you know, guys like me in their armchair can go, you know, looking back, that wasn't a good idea because yeah. that's, uh, and I think at the time, there, you know, at the time, there was criticism of that move because what you did was you put hundreds of thousands of Iraqi soldiers out onto the street unemployed. And they're trained; they're militarily trained. And they're trained, yeah. And and you're shocked that there's IEDs showing up the next day <laughs> on the roadside. I mean, you know, I, it's just, um, yeah. Do you, do you think one of the reasons why Iraq still stands? I mean. For the record, Afghanistan still stands as a nation. That's right. not what I meant. But sure. the, the 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 Iraqi government that we helped to create that that entity still stands. One of the reasons is because it had more of a sense of nationhood than versus why the Iraqi government that we helped to create no longer stands. Um, or you think there are more other reasons for it? I, I okay the 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 cynical response. I love cynical <laughs> response. Please, <laughs> the cynical response is that the the Iraqi government and the Iraqi military manage their corruption much better. <laughs> manage their okay. corruption much better. They, they manage oh, their corruption a lot better, and and the people there, the, the Iraqi people, therefore tolerate it better. Okay. They are able to continue to do their business, do, do things uh, without too much interference from the Iraqi police or you know heavy handedness, stuff like that. There is an accepted level of corruption. It's like in America, you know, we 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 accept a certain level of crime. Right. Yeah. We, we don't we don't expect zero, uh, but we expect something. Right. And, and so same there. I think that's the cynical view. Um, but I don't think an un, unrealistic one. Uh, the I, more idealistic view is what you were just saying that, you know, Iraq has, has a longer history as, a, as an organized state that functioned, um, even with the, the, Kurd, the Kurds and the Sunni and the Shia, what have you, um, than Afghanistan. I mean, Afghanistan is, is, um, you know, has rarely functioned as an actual state entity that we would be familiar with in the West. It's a different, it's a different kettle of fish. I mean, totally. Yeah. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about the Vietnam War and draw some comparisons from there to Afghanistan? Excellent. Professor Allison, how are America's military strategies and objectives different for Vietnam 
than Afghanistan. And in the last segment, you touched on this as well. Yeah, um, I, I think it, the strategic approach in Vietnam, um, it, it evolved. evolved. Uh, you know, it, it's, part of the, it's part of the Cold War construct, as, as we talked about earlier, uh, you know, the way we saw that, that, con that conflict. Um, we made, you know, the, the strategy evolves from initially, you know, supporting a, a government in South Vietnam, uh, the DM regime, and then um, Did that start also, with Eisenhower or Kennedy. Yeah, that started actually um, in uh, late Eisenhower. Yeah, uh -huh. he comes in under Eisenhower, and then Ken Kennedy continues that. Uh, and and DM was kind of an odd choice. I, I don't know. Sometimes you know we use phrases like. Well, that was the best choice we had, um, which is you know, not very flattering to the choice we chose. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right, yeah, great. Um, let's not let's like, make sure young people don't use that for dating circumstances, right? <laughs> right. It's it's like you know the player to be named later. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but but DM, you know, he's he's well educated, you know, Vietnamese, but but he's also a Catholic, which many in Vietnam are because of the French. You know, occupation and colonization for so long. Um, you know, he, he's he's in a, he's a Catholic minority in a nation full of Buddhists, and and of course, employed nepotism and stuff like that. I mean, he, he was kind of a difficult sell for the Vietnamese people to swallow this guy. Um, but the idea was support that is the government, and then build up the the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. We call it the Arvin for short, the Arvin, and build them up uh, with training, equipment, whatnot. And that's where we start getting advisors in and stuff like that. And now, now this is late 50s, 1960, you know, the North Vietnamese government decides to support the, the Viet Minh, the Viet Cong in the South, the insurgency, uh, and get that going. And uh, so now you've got to use that military we're building to fight this insurgency. And so we let build their deal so that they can fight their own war. Then you get to the early, to 1963, 64, there's a battle at Atbac uh, where the South Vietnamese army, the Arvin, did not perform very well. Um, uh, it's kind of a mess. Um, uh, later that year, of course, you know, I, I don't know if you remember that yet seeing these images, uh, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners too, of the, uh, you know, the Buddhist protest, uh, the monks setting themselves on fire mm -hmm. yeah. in the middle of the street, stuff like that. If there's any, if For there's the any, record, I don't remember. I've seen it on TV. No, no, no. I, I think, I think you and I are in the same ballpark age-wise. Yeah. And, and no, no, I, I, yeah, no, you see, you see those images and they're incredibly disturbing, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of one of those things where if you see that going down, you ought to be asking yourself a question. Okay. Something's not right here. Yeah. If, if the if people are setting themselves on fire, right, um, then we got a problem. Um, and of course, the, the DM regime is overthrown by a coup by the military officers in, in, in the fall. Were we involved uh, DM, in that coup? Uh, we basically gave it the green light. Uh, uh, we, we gave it the green light because we were kind of done with, with DM. And his, his brother ran the secret police. He was pretty heavy handed. But both of them, we we. Kennedy wanted them to get out, uh, but they were both murdered. Um, oh, that, wow. the night okay. Of the yeah, uh, they were executed. And so now you have these generals running the show, and, and ultimately, uh, Tu and Key will be the two guys who will rise out of that and run, the, run South Vietnam for the rest of the conflict. But long way around to get to 
it, you know, at back happens and we, we bring in more troops and um, 64, 65, we start to realize, okay, they can't fight the war or we're going to have to do it for them. Now, you know, here's that arrogance Wait, and hubris. Uh, that uh, hold on really one moment, please, here. Yeah, yeah. Yep. You, say, you just made a very big statement. You said, we realize that they can't fight the war. We have to fight it for them. Is yeah. this something that you, Professor Allison, the academic who's researched and written about these things, saying this, we realize, or is this something that you're saying 65, so is President Johnson. President Johnson and his yes. generals kind of realize that we, they can't fight the war. Is this just this a, a contemporary realization, this, right? This is a strategic choice that Johnson and uh, the commanders in Vietnam, the joint chiefs that they made oh. at that time, that we're going to have to what we called Americanize the war. We're going to have to take over the fighting for them. Now, this didn't happen overnight. Uh -huh. uh, it, it takes about a year and a half. Um, and then so so we take on the burden of the fighting. Uh, now, when you think about it, though, this makes some sense in the sense that uh, we're trying to recreate our command and control structures. We're using our equipment, our uh, doctrine, if you will, of how do you fight that sort of thing. And that's and so, you know, through our arrogant eyes, of course, we'd be better at doing this than the other guy, would, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so we do that, and, and you know the history. It, it doesn't play out well. It gets to be messy. Although it looks like we're making progress through sixty six, sixty seven, then sixty eight. We're winning happens. battles. Yeah, we're winning battles, right? And as the Vietnamese will tell you, you can win all the battles you want, but you still lost the war, guys. Um, so, you know that that and there's truth. By the way, I'm that. laughing at that saying. I'm not laughing at the fact. Yeah, that no, no, I, I I know what that's, you're doing. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. This I, I I forget that we're. <laughs> We're, we're on sound here and you yeah. and I are looking at each other yeah. um, on the screen. So some, some will be lost in translation, um, hopefully not mistranslated. So you, then we, you know, after, after 68, 69, clearly we've lost our political will to continue this. And, and, and that's when, when I told you earlier, we make the choice to, uh, we, we decide, okay, now we're going to manage how we lose this. Which is so interesting. So, so the strategy changes. How do we get out and how do we keep a South Vietnam, Vietnam intact while getting out? You told me earlier that the fact is that we made a political decision, a sound political decision. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting your mm -hmm. words here to not win. Is this where you're going right now? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I, we were not going to win that war. But what I was mean, what did it mean to win? So, did mean okay? Did, did, did winning mean to invade North Vietnam and obliterate it, or what were we trying to do? Winning, winning that war would be an independent South Vietnamese state that the North Vietnamese, the Chinese, the Russians, and us agree to allow to exist. That was the political objective the whole time. And, then, and, and to get to that point, all right, just to muddy it even more, to get to that point, you know, that, that's, that's going to be a, a negotiated settlement, okay, an agree that kind of an agreement. So 
How do you use military force to achieve that political objective when the only way it can really be achieved is through a negotiated settlement? And that's what we were trying to do was use military force to get to that point. Now, what are we doing? We're trying to uh, pacify the countryside. We're using the Arvin to do that. We're trying to defeat the Viet Cong, the insurgency. We're using our forces to do that. But now you got the North Vietnamese Army coming down, the Ho Chi Minh Trail coming in, right? Um, and increasingly, as you go on to 68, 69, it's more the NVA involvement than it is the Viet Cong. The Viet Cong gets swacked pretty badly in the Tet Offensive. Viet Cong um, were the... The insurgents. The insurgents. The, the ins now, the insurgents now you have the North Vietnamese Vietnam. coming. Right. Yeah. And look, another another thing you need to keep in mind with this, and I think this is one of the problems we had in Afghanistan, is um, the, the the successful American combat arms involves the use of firepower. That's what we're really good at. I mean, we just have massive firepower, be it bombs, artillery, what have you. That's what we're good at. That's what we were good at in World War II. Uh, you know, that's that's one of the reasons we won that war. We could just obliterate stuff. And I don't mean the atomic bombs. I mean, just conventional you know, just weapons, yeah. conventional weapons. That's what we're good at. And um, when, when you have an army military whose doctrine is a, around that concept, is surrounded by that concept uh, that just came out of World War II, what's in the rearview mirror in the 1960s? World War II. Yeah. Right. Exactly. What's in our rear view, rear view mirror right now in 2021? 2001. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's not World War II. Okay. So that, that's what's shaping these but, leaders, thinkers. That's what's uh, shaping Professor Allison, If I war. may just uh, uh, interrupt you for one moment, please. Couldn't the case be made that in the case of our military objectives later in the latter half of the 1960s, we could just point our guns towards North Vietnam and just bomb the heck out of them. Just okay. bomb everything around the border within a hundred. Obviously I'm just, you know, yeah. uh, using loose words here. It's not, that's not exactly what I mean, but right. why didn't our firepower work? North Vietnam was a separate country. There were not insurgents shooting at us then at night going, sitting at a restaurant next door to us having food. Right. No, no, that's an excellent question. And that's one people still will ask today. You know, it, it, it's the idea that we, we fought that war with one arm tied behind our back. Um, which we did. Absolutely. How's, how's that? What do you mean? One arm? Well, in the arm sense arm. that we did not attempt to destroy North Vietnam. We did not attempt regime change in North Vietnam. We did not. That was never part of the, the objective. That was never part of the plan. The idea of the bombing of North Vietnam with, by, you know, from, from the air, you know, rolling thunder, the bombing campaign, this gradual escalated thing was to compel the North Vietnamese government to get to the negotiating table so that we could get to that negotiated settlement for an independent South Vietnam that, that they would recognize. That's what we were doing. Now, why are we doing it that approach? Mainly because the North Vietnamese border, their North border borders with who? China. What had happened 10, 15 years before in, in Korea, Korea when we got too close to the border? China. We didn't want to get into a broader war with China. Um, we didn't want, we were very worried about uh, Western Europe and the Soviets. 
um, you know, would this be a distraction or something? And suddenly we wake up one morning and the distraction. Soviets it almost yeah. sounds like a war in Afghanistan now. Is this a distraction from China? Ah, right. Or early, early on, that you know, Iraq became a distraction from Afghanistan. Right. It and did. Kind of yeah. All about. So, so what I'm getting at is, is that you know, we we had very legitimate, real constraints to deal with because we didn't want a broader war. And you got to remember, this is the height of the you know World War III in our back, you know, the back of our heads and all that. You know, Americans are making uh, are, are digging bunkers in their backyards. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. You know, Cuba had just happened in '62. Yeah. I mean, this is fresh in everybody's memory. Uh, so you got to keep that in mind. You know, this is why it's it's it's. It's easy to look back and say, why didn't we do whatever? Well, there were good reasons for not doing yeah, uh, some yeah. of these things that we think we should have done. Um, but, then, you know, we Vietnamized the war and, and turn it back over to the South Vietnamese. Uh, the problem was, was, was that we, we used the Arvin for so long for pacification uh, operations, which is mainly just providing local security for villages and things like that, as opposed to getting them good combat experience. And so when we are pretty much out, which is 1971, 72, I mean, I think by 72, we've only got about 50,000 troops there. Uh, by the end of the year, it's down next to nothing. Um, you know, we're, we're, they're doing more of the fighting, we're doing less, but they're still not doing as much as the fighting as maybe they needed to, to get the broad experience that they needed. And so when we were gone, you know, suddenly they're there having to fight this thing and they just weren't weren't prepared for it at all. It's amazing they lasted a year and a half, frankly. It's amazing. Oh, oh wow. Um, it, I'm amazed that you say it's amazing because what I'm wondering is this, Professor Allison. It's now 2021 and we've gone through several experiences. I can identify three. I'm sure there are smaller countries that they don't pop into my mind. Um, Iraq, we had to go in several years ago to help Iraq with the ISIS situation. Afghanistan, the, 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 the government that we helped create is gone. Vietnam, the government that we helped create is gone. Is, is this something that American military leaders are cognizant of? Is this something that is, again, I'll go back to my earlier question, being taught or at least talked about in military academies? Like yeah. we're propping up these nations, these militaries, forget the nation building for a second, these militaries and, and our allies are falling apart. Yeah, um, I, it is. It is talked about, and it needs to be talked about more. And I think it needs to be talked about more in the context of this is what the use of military force can do. This is what it cannot do. Okay, it can go in and provide security. It can uh, topple. It can topple a regime by military force. It can uh, hold back theoretically, uh, some adversary in that country, whatever, to provide security. But it, it cannot create a, a government that is legitimate in the eyes of the people in that country. I mean, that's, that's the problem. It gets the old, it's this old adage, um, this idea that, that, you know, the Vietnamese said it, I'm sure Afghans will say it, I'm sure the Iraqis will say it, whoever, 
in the Philippines, they probably say it from the beginning of the past previous century. Um, you know, we we can't win with you. We can't win without you. We can with you. We cannot no, we win. Can't. With, yeah. We cannot we win can't. with you, yeah. and we cannot win without you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. Oh wow. Yeah. I. You know. We we need you to, in order to provide the security and give us a chance. But because you're here, it upsets so much of the population that you know we can't. We're not seen. Our government can't be seen as legitimate because it's being seen as a puppet of the United States. Is this the way that 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 will always be, or is there lessons that we can learn to prop up the military of our um, of our sort of ally slash client state? Uh, you know, we haven't learned. We keep on doing, like you said, even in the Philippines in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, yeah. we had to go in. Um, right. Is, is yeah. There... I go ahead. I don't know. I, I just it, it. You know. I guess, you know, it's one of those things, if I had that answer, <laughs> right? <laughs> President Biden would be calling you. Yeah, uh, right. Or listening um, to this podcast episode. But but uh, I, I think part of it is, is the only other thing I can think of and, and that I've you know talked with colleagues about, uh, you know, around the country is, you know, use the military to go in and, and, and lay the groundwork and then get out. Like we did in 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 o two in Afghanistan, we went in there. Um, we and same thing. I guess Iraq too. We toppled the regime. Whatever. Okay, we're done. Get out, and then turn it over to something else. You know, the UN or or something else that um, doesn't have um, to you know to put it bluntly, the stink of the United States on it. I mean, that maybe the that stink is of the, the United States. Yeah, right? the stink of the United States. That, that I think that's part of the problem. It's, it's we've done this so many times now over the past 50, 60 years that it's it's almost like oh great here come the Americans. Hmm. And, and 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 so our our legitimacy, our street our street cred, uh, our legitimacy with, with these things is just getting more and more uh, degraded. As, That's as unfortunate. Keep, keep, it is. It, it is. Um, but it also gets back to it. Uh, what? What is it we're trying to achieve? What is the objective in these things? What? What are we trying to do? And, and are you talking politically of, or militarily? Yeah, politically. It's, look, look. The, the the military force thing you should always be tied to the the, the political objective we're trying to yeah. achieve. Yeah. That's yeah. why we should be using military force in the first place if it's necessary. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it's just hard to just solely use the one to do, to, to, to achieve that. And, and I think part of the problem is, is we, I don't know. We are, are the objective just gets muddied. It gets changed. It gets, you know, it evolves or something. And, and, and it's difficult to, uh, to win when you, um, you're, it's almost, let me put it another way. One of the problems I think we've had last several decades and Don Stoker in his wonderful recent book, aptly titled, by the way, why America loses wars. Um, I, I highly recommend wow, what a title. To, your, to, your, to your listeners. Um, it's very provocative. You don't have to agree with everything in it, but it should get you thinking. And that's that's the point of a lot of this. That's kind of the point of what we're doing today. Exactly. And but we we tend to um, 
decide, okay, how much war do we want to do? How much force do we want to use? How many troops do we want to send over there? And if that's the, the number, what can we achieve with that? Versus we want to achieve X, build a force structure that can achieve that. In other words, we approach it backwards, if that makes sense. Well, putting it in business perspective is, in the first case, you're saying that this is what I want to do with my company, so I'm going to raise this much money uh, to get there. In the second, uh, in the second sort of scenario, is this is how much money we have. Right. This is how much how much funds we have. What can we achieve with these funds, available funds? And you're saying that the second scenario is better. No, 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 no. The, the second scenario is what we've been doing, and that's been the problem. Oh, I see. Uh, I see. I'm sorry. Yeah, we got it. We got it backwards. Uh, what you just said first. You know, first scenario is what's your objective yeah. and go this get the military get. numbers, finances, right. uh, the, the logistics, the support. Oh, I see. I see. And you're saying yeah. that we have not done that. We've not been doing that. So what's what we need to do? We need to, with your business analogy, this is what the business wants to achieve. Raise the funds, build the infrastructure, whatever to achieve that. Okay. That's what we ought to be doing. Instead, I have not been doing that. I know I already asked that question, but yeah, that's yeah. that boggles my mind that we haven't. Yeah, done. yeah. And look, there's a lot of reasons that this has happened. Um, you know, it's part you know, just for Afghanistan for or previous conflicts as well. Oh, previous. I mean, this was oh, Vietnam, wow. right? You know, we never called up the reserves. We didn't, you know, do anything like that. We never went on a full. When's the last time we were on a full war footing as a society? World, World War, War II, II, which we're going to get to. Right. Uh, right. In more, When's the last wow. time we had the draft? You know, you know, Vietnam. And you know, heaven help us, we probably will never have a draft again. Yeah. Uh, because of Vietnam. But so what I'm saying is, is we it's it's like we we I, I think in you know in our email exchanges earlier, you know, it's the idea of, of we're gonna be at war, but we're gonna pretend like we're not. <laughs> and, Sometimes and, we don't and, even call it a war. Exactly, and and I mean, think of the last twenty years. You know, we in in Iraq, Afghanistan, what have you. Um, you know, un unless you had a family member, or you yourself, or you know somebody, uh, most of us don't have any skin in the game. Uh, we got a volunteer force over there doing this stuff for us, and you know, I could still afford gas. I could still buy stuff on Amazon. It got delivered in two days. Um, you know, I could still watch Netflix. They were still producing things, whatever, whatever. So you're happy. You know, life didn't really change. Yeah. Too much. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I'm going to ask a naive military question uh, and I'm confessing that it's naive, but, um, uh, I'm, it's just sort of itching away at me. So I wanted to ask it, um, both in the case of Vietnam and in the case of Afghanistan, let's put politics aside for a moment. Militarily speaking, would it have been feasible, possible to leave a well-fortified, somewhat isolated military presence in these countries? I'll say like 10,000 guys and, and gals, I mean, military personnel in a well-fortified place, and they provide sort of moral support to those countries. And once in a while, they may go on an air mission and then come back. Would it have been possible? And also, by the way, in both instances, there would have been a check on the on China in Afghanistan. Had we left a fort in in Afghanistan, 
we would have had a fort in Central Asia on the you know uh, backyard of China. Sure. Um, yeah. So, for example, if you left you know ten thousand a bunch of aircraft and whatnot at Bagram or yeah, you know whatever, whatever, um, yeah. or or in South Vietnam, you left you know a force at, at Tan Sanut or you know Long Bin or something like that. Um, yeah, I and, and of course you could take the analogy further because that's what we did in Japan and Germany. Exactly, right? and and even South yeah, Korea. Even, okay, in South Korea, right? Okay, um, in a lot of ways, those South Korea, Japan, Germany, those are really different situations. Um, much larger scale of conflict, uh, much more direct, direct military threat. Um, you know, the Soviet Union and Western Europe, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so they're, they're, they're just, you're comparing apples and oranges there, I think a little bit, but mm -hmm. back to, but the Bagram, whatever, you know, more recently, um, I don't know. I, I just, part of me, you know, Af Afghanistan's a really isolated, difficult place to get to. It and, is. and you got to keep a, um, oh, you got to keep a, a logistical line open. Uh, which is going to be by air. Uh, that's dicey. Um, you're going to have to, uh, you know, rotate people in and out of there constantly because um, you're not going to be able to keep people cooped up there for 12 months. You know, at, at a in a tour. You know, I'm talking about our service members. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, and the tendency with that is, is, is you just you just tend to be you're just going to be isolated on this little island going out every once in a while to do something, uh, which is just completely counter to any sort of counterinsurgency doctrine or anything where you have to mingle with the population, win hearts and minds. And, and look, we've already been accused of doing this, right? You know, that drone strike in Kabul after the bombing. Yeah. Supposedly, you, know, you know, saying we killed a bunch of civilians, right? Family, stuff like that. How many times has that happened over the past 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq? You know, a lot. We, Right, a lot, and so you're just now that you describe I it just, this I way, just, uh, having a fort sort of left in these countries, it would even uh, sort of support the view that we ha we are a foreign presence in their country yeah. more and more. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for for describing that. We'll be back after a short break to talk about World War II and compare that to our subsequent military conflicts. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Allison, to the best of my knowledge, and I think you confirmed that in an earlier segment, in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, we won every major battle. And I think the Korean War is an exception to that, where we lost some battles to, due to initial surprises and later surprise of China joining the war as we got close to their border. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. In all these wars, we were really the superior power. Uh, even though sometimes we met semi-peers, we were still superior power. 
So effectively, since World War II, we have not fought an enemy that is our outright match um, or a threat to, to us. One, you can tell me whether or not I'm correct on that assessment. Sure. And two, tell me whether or not the, 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 the nature of warfare, American warfare, has it changed since World War II or has it stayed the same? We're still fighting the same old enemy that we fought in World War II. Yeah, uh, well, that's man. Uh, that's a, that's a that's a dissertation question. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, to you know, we 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 tend to win battles, um, but what we're still losing the wars, and and that's been told to us by our adversaries. You know that yeah, you won all the battles. They gloat about it. Yeah, they gloat about, it, but you still lost the war, and and. Okay, that gets back to what we talked about in the first segment, right out of the gate. War is difficult. War is just hard. Even for us, the great American superpower with all the cool stuff and, you know, everything we've, we've got, the great, uh, you know, people we have in our military, it's still difficult to translate military success into victory with if, if victory is achieving the political aim of, of the war that you had in the first place. It's just really tough to do. And, and, and our, our experience in warfare the past you know, several decades has borne this out. I think, um, I mean, even, even the first Gulf War, uh, as, and, I, and I'm reluctant to use this term, but the, as tidy as that was, as tidy right. as that war was, yeah. As, as tidy as that war was, a uh, hundred-hour ground war, you know, that followed several weeks of of air of, of a bombing campaign, is well planned and thought out, and it was brilliant, actually. I mean, it was really, if you, you know, a, a, a very compelling total success of, of combat arms on the battlefield, absolutely. Um, and and we didn't we. The objective was not to overthrow Saddam Hussein. It was not to remove him from power. And there were good reasons at the time to we just free Kuwait and, and, and to not under- do that. It was to liberate Kuwait, get him yeah. out of there, you know, basically, you know, slap his wrist pretty good, get him to behave again, you know, that sort of thing. You didn't want to create a power vacuum, you know, right there with Iran and, and, and everything all that. Um, I mean, and proof of the pudding is look at the chaos in the Middle East since we invaded Iraq, you know, in 2003. Yeah. You know, it is right. It's just caused, caused a lot of instability. Um, but this idea of, of facing an existential threat, you know, was, was that an existential threat? In a lot of ways it was because of the oil. And, and, and that's, that is a, that is an interest that, that we have to protect. We, we rely on it still. And, and, you know, we didn't have much choice there. Uh, if he controlled that much of the oil production. You're talking about the first Gulf War. Yeah, the first Gulf War. Yeah, Sorry, where he took Gulf over War. Kuwait. Yeah, yeah, Kuwait. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, that was a, a bit of an existential threat, you know, very at least to our economy. But um, I don't know. It, it, you know, was Vietnam an existential threat? No. Uh, were we fighting a, a peer competitor in Vietnam? Not really. Uh, but they still won. You know, how, how, how is that possible? Yeah. Right. Um, same thing in Afghanistan. You know, we, we still didn't pull it off. And again, it's translating that military success on the battlefield to 
political success. Is it is it a case that we just haven't learned or haven't put into uh, our strategy guerrilla warfare? Is is that is that it or no? It's much bigger than that. No, I think it's much bigger than that. I, th I think um, guerrilla warfare. Uh, uh, you know, we we would our our approach to that is we call that counterinsurgency um, to counter guerrilla warfare. Uh, we study it, and uh, in, in in our PME schools, the war colleges, staff colleges. What's PME? Need, uh, professional military education. Sorry, I say PME school. Military. Okay, these are the, the service. Uh, uh, staff colleges and war colleges. Uh, yeah. they'll, they'll they'll read uh, Che Guevara. They'll read Mao's Little Red Book. Oh wow, they'll, they do. You know, we'll read this stuff. We'll read um, uh, you know the 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 British thing, you know Malaysia stuff like that. I mean, they'll. So we, in fact, um, you know, when Petraeus, Petraeus, General Petraeus, in the mid to hot thousands, got. Um, that group together to rewrite the field manual for counterinsurgency. Um, you know, got a bunch of the best brains in the business and they did a great job and they used a lot of good history to look at, to come up with ideas. Um, but it's still hard to do. I, well, you know, if it's hard it's to do, hard. let me, let me ask you yeah. this, uh, if I may, please. In World War II, two of our, adversaries germany and 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 japan particularly japan were highly patriotic uh japan was an outright insular society uh hardly any foreigners there uh before the 1880s actually right um yet after their governments surrendered there was no significant insurgency like we saw in afghanistan in 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 iraq and also we had the Viet Cong in uh, south vietnam yet there were greater powers with great sort of sense of patriotism that we lost to america there was no sort of that much i'm sure there's always internal conflict but the sense of loss must have been grave on all the these two nations of course italy as well but yeah how is it that no. that didn't happen but it happened later to us no, that's that's good. Um, I, you know, in the case of Germany and Japan, especially Germany, I mean, the irony there is there was already a robust insurgency against the Nazi regime during yeah. the war, right? And when the war was over, there was a brief, small, you know, diehard group of Nazis who tried to rekindle the flame, and of course, it didn't get anywhere. Um, and Japan didn't didn't really, as I recall, didn't didn't really have that, yeah. that at all, but. I think a lot of it had to do, I mean, that, that was complete, utter defeat. And, and, and not only the will of the people to continue fighting that, those, you know, in the Pacific and uh, the Japanese and the, and the Germans in Europe, um, but it was a physical destruction. And I'm not talking about the atomic, just the atomic bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those places were physically destroyed like look I at mean, uh humberg in 1945 yeah, 44 yeah was, i mean you uh, see those those scenes of nuremberg you know during yeah. the trials and the place is just level it's just a parking lot so we we just i think we forget it'd be the equivalent today if here you know or if it happened here in the states of cities like atlanta and charlotte and los angeles and san francisco and chicago just leveled 
I mean, God just, forbid. Yeah. There's, there's nothing there. There's there, the water doesn't run. There's no electricity. There's no transport. It's just bricks. Total collapse of society. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that's the key, the key difference, uh, Uh, perhaps. Is, do you think nation building is integral to modern warfare? It, It seems the way we go about war and what we do, that nation building is like part of the, part of the process. Yeah. Well, it's not just we, based on what you said. Also, the Soviets tried to do that in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's part of the thing. And and um, and what's that's ironic to me in some ways because we tend to always talk about how God, we got to stop nation building. We got to quit doing this. And yet we can't help ourselves. You know, we get in there and and we want to we want to do it. And look, part of this is. Is you know we truly believe, and I think you and I can agree on this. We 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 believe in our our value system, you know, as a free society, and all of that. And we wish that others had the benefit of that free society, uh, of, of those values, and 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 we want to impart those. And that's kind of been our shtick, you know, for the last hundred years. But you know, you can't re you can't plant that seed everywhere and expect it to grow. And, and yeah. I think that's what we've learned the hard way in Afghanistan. And it's done a little better in Iraq, but I mean, you know, it didn't take in, in Vietnam. Uh, part of the problem is you know, we, 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 we tend to, you know, we leave a big footprint. In, in other words, we, we come in and we just, all this equipment, you know, personnel uh, and, and money, we just dump so much money on these places. Uh, that it that just, probably destabilizes the country that we're it going to. Destabilizes. I mean, in Vietnam, it totally destabilized the economy in South Vietnam, and of course, a lot of Vietnamese in the cities like uh, uh, Saigon, you know, they saw our big American PXs, post exchange stores for the military that had stereo systems and all this stuff in it. You know, they they want they want uh, you know th- that material those material goods. Um, we, which I guess for if you're trying to promote capitalism is a good thing. Yeah. But you know, it it disrupts cultures, it disrupts, you know, the traditional base of a culture and stuff like that if that's not their thing. Um do you think we're done with that nation building? I part of me hopes so, <laughs> but you know, you can also see where. You know, if you go, if you, it's like, what is it? Colin Powell said one time, like, if you know, if you, it's the pottery barn rule. If you break it, you gotta, you gotta fix it. Yeah. Um, you break it, you, know, you buy we, it. Yeah. We went into Iraq and we broke it. And this is the way we tried to fix it. And it's incredibly imperfect. Like we said earlier, you know, the then what can be the hardest thing. And it's, it's, it's a tough nut to crack. It is. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Allison as we get into the perspective. <music> Professor Allison, is American politics hampering our military success. I'll I'll give you one example that always sort of just irks at me. Um, uh, For example, 
Our presidents announce timelines and deadlines for our departure from a country or a region. Does that does that even make military sense? Do do our military readers sort of cringe every time this happens and privately advise our presidents against these announcements? Yeah, um, of course, a lot of that is political. Uh, some yeah, of that of is, you know, the War Powers Act. If if we choose to follow it, if the president chooses to follow it. You know, requires regular reporting to Congress every so many, you know, so many days, that sort of thing. But no, it's it seems to be the first question we ask when we send troops into harm's way is how long. It, it's funny. It's, it's how long are we going to be there, and 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 when are we when are we coming coming home? <laughs> Third question then might be, oh, by the way, what are we doing there? <laughs> right. I mean, it's kind of the first question. <laughs> yeah, it should be the first question. You know, where is this place? And what are we doing there? Um, so, yeah, it it it's so much of it is just politicized, and because it sends um, a signal to the other side that they don't need to win; they just need to outlast you. Boom! Exactly. No, they just have to outlast us, and yeah. and um, and they can sense when the will is breaking. I mean. You know, I mean, the North Vietnamese sensed it after Tet. Uh, They didn't intend for the Tet Offensive to break the American public's will. Um, You know, it was a little, it was more nuanced than that, but that was kind of an unexpected bonus of what went down. Um, Despite their being militarily defeated in the the Tet Offensive, uh, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, you know, within months started to realize that, hey, that their house is cracked. That foundation is cracked and it's starting to collapse. Uh, we got a chance. Here. Is that so, because of American casualties in that offensive in that battle? Um, I, you know, it, it was, it was less so, I think the casualties, it was more um, the, just the lack of progress. Lack you know, of progress. It, okay. It's, 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 and that's the other problem um, to get further away from answering your, your original question. The, um, the, we tend to, you know, politically, you got to keep the American public on board. And to keep the American public on board, there's got to be good news. There's got to be progress. And what did we see in Vietnam? We weren't told the truth all the time. Uh, what have we seen throughout the years in Afghanistan? Uh, you know, the Washington Post, you know, the, the Afghanistan papers that are coming out, kind of the equivalent to the Pentagon papers from the Vietnam years. Uh, it's kind of clearly showing that, you know, a lot of times we weren't being upfront with the American public about uh, what was happening in Afghanistan. Wow. Uh, you know, we, you know, we, painted, we painted a rosy picture to keep us on board, to keep, keep supporting it. Um, but by the same token, it, you, you know, by setting deadlines and everything, it allows your, the, 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 the political opposition, the loyal opposition in our system, when that deadline approaches and things aren't going so great, they can go, aha, you know, you're not doing what you said you'd do. Uh, vote for me in November. You know, it, it, that's it's just it's just the nature of our system. I, I think more than anything that, that, that kind of feeds this. Do, do you think and I'm changing tack here. Um, do you think the fall of Vietnam emboldened? America's enemies in the seventies and eighties. You're shaking your head. You're nodding your head. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, Give me an example. Uh, Saddam Hussein um, oh, he, attacked Iran. 
Well, no, no, that even before that. Uh, oh, before that. We, no, well, not. I'm sorry. After that, I apologize. After yeah. that, when when he did that in the the uh, Iran Iraq War of the 1980s, um, we actually supported Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. uh, because that was you know in response to the Islamic Revolution in 1979 in Iran, <clears throat> um, and that's another conflict like the Soviet Afghan War that we as Americans, especially in our professional military education institutions ought to be studying those wars a little more. I think it'd give us a better understanding of that area of the world. And you mean the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s? Yeah, the Iran-Iraq oh, okay. war, the Soviet-Afghanistan war. We, yeah. we, we just don't study that stuff. Uh, we don't. It doesn't involve us. We oh, don't. Interesting. And, and we, we, I think we need to. Um, but, yeah, you, Saddam in, in you know, 1990, I mean, he pretty much said it. Uh, he, he thought that um, invading Kuwait, taking Kuwait, nobody would care. The Cold War was coming to an end. We were distracted with the Soviet Union starting to kind of fall apart. The wall had come down, all that. Uh, and and yeah, I remember at that time, you're talking about 1990. We're only 15 years removed from the fall of Saigon. Yeah. Right? yeah. That's a blink of nine. That's in, that's in our rearview mirror. I don't think we had, no, we had not established, as Professor Demmer said it in a previous podcast, we had not yet reestablished our diplomatic relations with Vietnam yet. Yeah, not yet. Not yeah, yet. That yeah. would come in 93, 94, I think. Yeah. So it's, it's, that's in our rearview mirror. And Hussein said, look, you know, they're, they don't have the will to fight. They're very casualty adverse. They, the Americans, very casualty adverse. Um, you know, everything we got into, you know, Panama, uh, you know, what happened to Marine, the Marine barracks, you know, bombing in Lebanon. And Beirut, the, yeah. Beirut, 82, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, all those 200 things, some American uh, Marines yeah, died. Marines, yeah, it was horrible. But, um, and what did we do? We got out. We, we pulled out. I mean, we didn't stay long after that, right? So it's like we, it, it's in his mind, he's like, they're not going to do anything because they do not have the will, the stomach to fight a war uh, with any significant losses, especially not anything approaching to what his country, Iraq, had lost in the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, almost a million casualties. Wow. So, wow. you know, the way he's looking at it is ah, they're not going to do anything. They've lost it. They don't have the stomach to do It's this. going to be too bl- bloody for them. So. If that's yeah. the analogy, do you think the fall of Afghanistan, again, the Afghanistan that we supported, um, the fall of Afghanistan government that we supported, do you think that's going to have a negative impact uh, internationally uh, embolden our enemies? I don't know. I, I don't, the, the situations are a little maybe too different. Um, it was clear this thing was lost 10 years ago. I mean, really? I really, 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think anybody, you know, in, in positions of, of, of in, in these policy positions involved in this around the world would, would be like, I, I can't I can't believe they'd be kind of shocked we lasted this long. Um, you know, I mean, it, it it was clear this this wasn't going to end well. In, in other words, someone was at some point a president was going to have to pull the plug. And, and Biden, you know, the Trump administration made the deal. Biden, you know, physically pulled it and 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 it got really ugly and everything um but you know i i don't know i i just i don't don't think it's 
it's going to be as horrible as it was in, in those awful scenes. I just don't think a few years from now it's going to resonate with with as much or or with anyone else much. So I don't think we're going to draw too much. Not as much as Vietnam. Vietnam. I see. Because Vietnam was, you know, 58,000 Americans lost their lives in that conflict. Yeah. 50,000 of those in combat. Uh, You know, unfortunately we lost, you know, about 20, 2400 or so plus another uh, several hundred allies, you know, plus tens of thousands of of Afghans lost their lives uh, in this 20 year long conflict. So it's just not been, you know, I, I, I and again, I don't want to sound crass to 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 your listeners, but I think until a couple of weeks ago, I think a lot of people in America probably forgot we were even still there. I, I mean, I, hate to I say don't that, think you I sound just, crass. I think many I just, Americans you know, uh, are probably. Whereas more, in Vietnam, Vietnam, yeah. we knew. I mean, it was still in your face. You know, it was still raw and all that. I mean, think about, you know, you had the My Lai trials that just wrapped up in 72, 73, Uh, you know, the final withdrawal, you know, from for for the Paris Peace Accord, you know, in January of 73, the POWs coming back. I mean, all that was just, you know, in your face constantly. And I I think perhaps one difference you were saying that uh, you didn't want to sound crass until two, three weeks ago. Most Americans weren't even thinking about Afghanistan, that we're there still. Um, One of the things maybe just a minor difference is that back then when Walter Cronkite spoke and several other major um, news reporters, that's it. You had two, three channels, NBC, CBS, ABC. Yeah. Uh, it's not like you were on your own social media feed day and night uh, following some something that you're into. So right. I, I think the news had a bigger impact on society. I, I agree um, 100%. Absolutely. Uh, Professor Allison, if you want our audience to remember just one point about our military strategy strategy in Afghanistan, what would that be? Um, I, you know, again, I, in our in our email traffic, when we were talking about this a little bit, I, sh- I yeah. share with you a thought, and it, and it's and some may may think it a, a kind of a cheeky response to that to to you know what to leave you with, but you know our military strategy in Afghanistan dot dot dot, um, I would argue wasn't a strategy at all. It was um, not a strategy at all. It was not a strategy at wow. all. Uh, we we made it up as we went along and. Um, and you, you say know, this way, you say we made it up. That's different than evolving as it did in well, sure. No, 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 fair point. Fair point. It we 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 allowed our the the, the objective to change at several yeah. points. And I think that the goalpost uh, changed. Yeah, exactly. That's a better hey, thank you. No, it's a that's a great way to put it. The goalpost changed. We kept moving it different distances. And you know, and it and it, it results in kind of a improvisational approach to strategy making that's a big thing to improvise on absolutely i mean it's it's um and and it's deadly um i mean you know that and i say that with the full you know recognition um and and just recognizing the tragedy of of what happened to our service members who lost their lives and wounded and, and of course the ones that have you know PTSD and that sort of thing. And a lot of veterans are struggling right now who served in Afghanistan because they're like looking back going, what was it all for? Um, exactly. For it to end this way. And you gotta you gotta understand that. But 
but just you know the Afghan people, the terrible terrible price they have paid for this this mess. Um, in that light, back to your earlier question and comment, um, we we don't look good. I just I, I it, it's just doesn't look good for us, and I don't know how we how we fix that or how we recover. Our exit strategy just doesn't look good. Yeah, and 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 of course, you just use the term exit strategy. Should we be using that track that strat that term even at all? Right. Um, well, should, what should else is there to use? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, you know, how does it, I think the American when we get into these things, the American public should have a very clear understanding of what it is we're trying to achieve. And we need to know what we think, what our political and military leaders think that that might look like. Um, you know, it's like, you know, go back to World War II. I mean, we decided early on that unconditional surrender was going to be the, the objective of, of Germany and Japan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everybody understood that, right? You know, got it. Um, but again, that's an aberration. World War II is a, just a total aberration in, in our experience. In World War, during World War II, um, there was a sense that we may actually, like, our, our, our America's boundaries were actually maybe yeah. penetrated. Yeah. I mean, Germany was a powerful enemy and, and they were taking out our allies. France and fell. Yeah. Germany was. No, oh, it was, it was, it was a true existential threat. Yeah. And in the, at the beginning of, you know, these wars now we're 20, just in a few days here, 20 years from uh, 9-11, that was an existential threat because we were attacked on our, within our borders. Exactly. Right. Exactly. We were attacked. And so that Al Qaeda was an existential threat. And so I guess, you know, years from now, maybe we'll historians, whoever's going to look back at this and go, okay, you were on the right path the first couple of years trying to get rid of Al Qaeda and you you basically shut them down. And that's when you should have stopped and, and, and got out. Now, I don't know. I mean, it's, that's easy. It's, you know, if ifs and buts were candies and nuts, what a wonderful world it would be, right? I mean, it would be. Just, yeah, it would be. That's a good. That's a, but, that's, but that's a happy add, note to end on. Yeah, but I, I would add just real quick that, that you know, we. I mean, I'm a historian. I'm, I'm I'm biased, obviously, but man, history matters. I mean, you you got. We've got to be better about understanding who we are as a people and being honest about our past so that we can understand our present, understand who we are today. Anything specific in our past you're talking about? Well, I mean, you know, you can think domestically of just our history of, you know, with race and and things like that. A lot of the the finally due attention that the the Tulsa massacre is getting, you know, from 1921. Can you Um, believe most people didn't know about that? I, I, I can believe that. Yeah. Um, you know, we just we have a, a wonderful selective memory and it doesn't include bad things like that. But so if history matters, maybe it goes back to what you were saying earlier. Uh, you were saying that we have a bad rap uh, around the world and people say, here come the Americans again. I'm, I'm using your sort of paraphrasing yeah. what yeah, you yeah, said yeah. earlier. Yeah. So yeah. maybe that matters in our next conflict. Sure. And 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 it's and it's understanding the the other the others' history, understanding their past, their culture, things like that. And and I just you know I can't emphasize that much that that enough that that we need 
we need to be better about that as a society. We need to be better about that in our the professional military education schools. And that's um, just, and that's not just as 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 we touched on this. It's not just kumbaya stuff. It's it's really no, to help no, us no, no. succeed in our mission. Yeah, it's it's yeah, and it's it's to help us to be, uh, you know, if if we want if we think that everyone should want to be like us, then we had better clean up our house and understand, <laughs> right? So that we can and understand who we are and our uh, our failings, our successes, but also our failings, which are which are many. Yeah. Uh, to be honest about that, and 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 I think we'll be collectively stronger for it. And then I think out there beyond our borders, uh, people might look at us and have a little more respect for who who, who we are as as a nation. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're absolutely true, uh, and that's a profound thought to bring our podcast conversation to an end. Um, Professor Allison, thank you so much for educating me. I certainly learned a lot from you, and also educating our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel Dot News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us. What's your perspective? The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.